Okay, well, death. It's a stark word, isn't it? And bitter experience forces everyone to recognize that stark reality, recognize that awfulness. The statistics are brutal. Uh, one out of one dies. Now, instinctively, we move away from death, don't we? We, we? we tend to move away from any notion of death, and we move towards notions of life. In fact, I think if you scratch below the surface, most people develop a way of thinking about death as a necessity which allows enjoyment of life. And I think the problem is largely driven by relationships. Uh, parents, uh, children, siblings, uh, friends. We really value relationships. We, we would do anything to maintain relationships. But constantly, they're being ripped away from us by death, whether that death comes through illness, um, accident suddenly, or simple old age. There's never a moment where we're ready to give up those relationships into death. We're horrified. We're traumatized. We sense that this is not right. We sense that we're made for something better, something more permanent. We long for something better. And angrily sometimes we wonder why it has to happen. And wish something could be done to prevent it. We actually want to defy death, but no, we can't. In spite of our efforts to look young or extend our lives, death catches up. And so I think what we do in our society is default to the next best thing. Uh, we avoid talking about it. And so traditionally, uh, death has been one of those impolite subjects at a dinner party. Even when we have to talk about death, and sometimes we do, we tend to sanitize the notion of death these days in our society. We sanitize the reality by saying that someone has passed. When's the last time you heard of somebody dying? People today just pass. I'm not sure where they're passing to, but that's the language. It seems to soften it. Funerals are increasingly given over totally to a celebration of the life of the person who's passed. Now, there's nothing wrong with celebrating the life, but, but somehow these celebrations are now dominating and there's no time given to consider the stark reality of that body before friends and family. And the termination of relationships that's represented in that body before the family and friends. No amount of celebration can really offset that. And then again, changing direction slightly. We all want to know how a story ends. We, we, we like to watch a movie to the completion. We, we follow scandals through the newspapers to completion. And no less do we desire to know how our own personal story is going to end. And so... In our society, some, perhaps even increasingly so, I think, turn to fortune tellers and mystics. Uh, increasingly common also in our society, people just assume 
a view of what happens after death without really thinking it through. So you'll hear people commonly talk today about reincarnation. And I'm thinking, really? Do you know what goes around all that? Uh, Or some people will just say, well, after death there's nothingness, there's oblivion. Well, how have you come to that conclusion? Uh, Or people commonly say, well, I'm going to be resurrected and go to heaven because I'm basically a good person, at least better than those people over there. And sometimes even we talk about he- uh, hell. And we, we talk about hell in a way that, that is uh, sort of domesticated it, where hell is now a place of fun. And if I end up in hell, well, I'll be there with all my mates. It'll be a romping old party. But you know what? When you scratch below the surface, in spite of all these strategies to deal with death, so many people still fear it. So many people still fear death. Ignoring it doesn't make it go away. Won't hold it at bay. Won't make it any easier when the moment comes. And that, if you need a reason this morning to tune into what the Bible said, that is why we need to listen to the words of Jesus in this passage before us. Because the words of Jesus promise a good end to our personal story. Jesus doesn't avoid the reality of death. He feels it deeply. We'll see that in the passage. But he promises to move us through death to life. That's his passion. That's his mission, to move people from death to life. He promises life everlasting. The good life that we, we long for every time we go to a funeral. The, the, the life we sense we're created for. He promises that to any and all who believe or trust in him. So with that introduction, let's turn to the story. One of these stories in which the truth is a sight more strange than fiction. When he walks through the first part of the story under the heading, and if you're a visitor this morning and not familiar with it, the outline of what I'm saying is on the back of that sheet you got given at the front door as you came in this morning, or should have been given. So I want to walk through the first part of the story under the heading of words speak louder than actions. Words speaking louder than actions. And I'm using that heading because I'm hoping it will actually help us avoid tripping up on a couple of real problems in the story early on. Because there's a couple of really jarring moments in this story as it unfolds. And those jarring moments, if we trip on them, will cause us to miss the the, the big point of the picture or the big point of the drama altogether. So here we go. Uh, Jesus is in a region called Batanea, which is up in the northwest of Palestine, about four days' travel from Bethany, where these guys live. And the story, at a big picture level, develops really, really slowly over a minimum of six days. Now, that slowness, I think, is pretty incredible, given that the story starts with Jesus getting the message that nobody wants to get. His good friend from a family he was obviously very close to was ill. Now, the word there is ill, it doesn't mean he just had a headache or or a bit of an upset stomach. It means he was seriously ill. He was at death's door and deteriorating. 
And this messenger arrives, and the news was already there for four days old when Jesus got it. And so with the message, we get no trouble, I think, sensing the desperate hope that was attached to that message by the two sisters. They would have known of Jesus' miraculous power intervening and reversing other similar situations. And so their hope attached to this message was that just perhaps in some, I don't know what way Mary and Martha might have thought, just maybe Jesus can do something. Maybe he can intervene in the situation for our brother. Either by coming to him immediately, and they know he had done that by crossing the Sea of Galilee, crossed it immediately, it says, or healing him from a distance. Now, this is the first stick point. Jesus' response into this urgency, this tragedy, unfolding tragedy, he sends a messenger back with another message, uh, essentially saying to Mar- Mary and Martha, knowing that the messenger would take four days to get back, to deliver this message, don't worry, everything will work out all right. And again, it's not hard to imagine Mary and Martha questioning the messenger. Remember, when you look at the time sequence of the story, by the time the messenger gets back, Lazarus has already been dead for two days. And you can just imagine Martha and Mary quizzing the messenger. Is that it? Is that all he said? He didn't offer to heal. He didn't offer to do anything. But it gets worse. Even more apparently heartless was Jesus' purposeful delay. Look at the way verses 5, 6, and 7 are put together. Now Jesus, we're just told in verse 5 how much Jesus loved the family. Then look at verse 6. The so in our English versions is a therefore. It's a very strong word. So it reads like this. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Therefore, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he did nothing for two days. And then verse 7, two days later when he knew that Lazarus was dead, then he says to his disciples, now let's go to Judea. Let's go and see Lazarus. But the disciples then come into the picture. And if Jesus is heartless, they're insensitive. Because it would appear that they're off in a different direction altogether. Because their concern, when they hear the word Judea, is, hang on a minute, that's going to be a strategic mistake. If we go back there, we're as good as dead. They're operating on their own agenda of what they think Jesus' mission should have been. And for them, the idea of death doesn't figure if Jesus is going to lead a revolt against the Roman occupation force. Jesus is no use dead. Go back there, you're as good as dead. No, Jesus, we can't do it. And verse 9 and 10, then Jesus challenges their agenda. Again, speaking purposely. Purposefully, rather. He says, look, it's... I'm light. And by definition, light dispels darkness. Even more than that, 
Jesus is saying there that he is the light of God's salvation purpose. This is my mission. I'm involved in God's salvation purpose. So what can go wrong? And what, what, what can go wrong? You're fulfilling God's plan is what Jesus is saying to them. But still they persist when Jesus then tells them that Lazarus has fallen asleep. They misunderstand it because they're not thinking. They're not engaged. They're thinking of their own agenda. And they seize on that as further reason not to go back to Jerusalem. Well, if Lazarus is showing some signs of recovery, well, we don't need to go there and put our lives at risk, put the, the bigger mission at risk. And again, that prompts another apparently heartless response by Jesus. Verse 14, Jesus clarifies. Jesus said, told them plainly, Lazarus has died. Look at what follows. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let's go to him. How could Jesus be glad he wasn't there and yet is now determined to go to him after he's dead? Friends, that's why I use the heading for this first part of the story. It's really important we hear Jesus' words rather than getting tripped up by his apparent actions. His words are purposefully designed to point to the heart of the story, to point towards belief, as we're told in verse 14. See, the story is not about Lazarus. It's about Jesus setting the scene where the death of Lazarus becomes a powerful demonstration of the character, purpose, and goodness of the Father and of Jesus himself. Called the, word, the word glory is used to describe all that. And so this whole story is orchestrated. And that's a very strong word, but it's the word that needs to be used. Jesus orchestrates every circumstance here so that they might believe that he is saviour, and king. And so, the way the story unfolds, at the end of the first part, we are face to face with an indisputable power. The power of death. Life, the life of Lazarus succumbs to death. Lazarus is dead. And Thomas, I think, speaks for the disciples following through this, this notion of death and heaviness, Thomas speaks for the disciples, verse uh, 16. Well, he says, we may as well go with him because we're all as good as dead if we go back to Judea. There's just a heaviness brooding over this whole story. Death, as it were, is coming at them from every which angle. And four days later, the heaviness continues. Four days later, they finally arrive at the home of Lazarus. And, and, and they're confronted with a scene of devastation. The reality of death dominates there as well. The despair, the confusion, the brokenheartedness, the pain, the anger, the grief, which comes inevitably with death, is all there, palpable, as Jesus arrives at the family home. And in conversation with Martha and then Mary, we sense 
We sense these two girls trying to be restrained, trying to keep it together, but oozing with hurt and disappointment. Why didn't you do something, Jesus? It was within your power to do something. Why? 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 If only. And man, isn't that the questions we ask? We're so familiar with those questions at a funeral, isn't it? Aren't we? We sit beside the bedside of somebody who's dying. That's the question, isn't it? And so John has drawn us brilliantly into an all too familiar yet dreadful scene. We've all been there. We've all been there. Sisters, brothers, wider family, parents, children, friends. We've all been there as one of those groups gathered to grief, numb with pain and confusion, wrestling in our hearts with the anger. It shouldn't be like this. The big questions. Why? What if? Longing that it could have been different, but at the same time not knowing how. And quietly recognizing, in a way that we never ever admit to, quietly recognizing that the unwelcome visitor who has just turned up again and snatched away, ripped away, one loved deeply by us, will one day turn up for us. It will be my turn soon, all too soon. So let's look at the second part of the story where Jesus' actions speak much louder than his words. Jesus walks into this tragic scene dominated by death and despair with words of promise, words of promise that overflow with hope, comfort and blessing. Look at verse 23. He pushes Martha to a whole new level of belief. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. See, Martha, like most Jews, believed there would be a sort of general resurrection sometime in the future at the day of judgment, at the end of the world. Because they believed that God would not allow death to have the final word in the lives of his special people. Jesus' challenge takes that baseline starting point and challenges her to believe that resurrection and life was to be found in relationship with him and might be known and enjoyed now. Jesus said to Martha, Martha, I need you to believe in me that I am the one, I am Messiah, I am the one who can cross the boundaries between life and death, this world and the next world. I can cross that boundary and bring back to life any whom I choose to do so, any I choose to give life to. This is my mission. This is my specialty, is what Jesus is asking Martha to believe. My specialty is moving people from death to life. 
I am the source of real life, says Jesus. And wherever I am, I'm so identified with resurrection and life that you can actually say, I am the resurrection. Wherever I am, says Jesus, there will be real life. Life that will never end. Relationship that will never break or cease to be or be ripped away. Life that will always satisfy and never disappoint. More than that, if that was possible, more than that, trusting Jesus or being in a relationship with with him means that though we will actually at some point in the future experience actual physical death and decay, we will never experience a break in relationship with God, but will pass through death into heaven and eternal relationship with him. Death won't be the end of our story. It's a new chapter as the life we have in Jesus now takes on a whole new dimension as the life we have with Jesus in heaven forever. Now look at Martha's response in verse 27. Now we can, we've got to cut the woman a bit of slack. This is, this is pretty, pretty big call to, to come at this sort of stuff. Martha says in verse 27, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Now, she doesn't quite get there, does she? She's a couple of steps short of what Jesus, or where Jesus wanted to be. But nevertheless, John records this very, very carefully. She doesn't get fully that resurrection life is a present reality to be enjoyed. But here's the go that John wants us to understand. What she does know is, what she is sure about, is that Jesus is the Christ. That is, that Jesus is God's King and Savior sent into the world to reverse the effects of sin, principle of which is death. So she doesn't know how it's all going to work. She can't quite get her head around what Jesus sent her. But she knows enough to know that life lies with Jesus. And interestingly also, when you look at the bigger picture, step right back, big picture stuff, John chapter 20, verse 31, John gives us his one reason for writing the whole record, and it's almost identical words to, which, to, that, to those which he puts in Martha's, uh, Mary and Martha, whoever it was, one of them anyway, one of the sisters, the almost identical words to what he puts in her mouth now. In other words, John's saying, yet she doesn't understand all the details, but she's there. She believes. She is a demonstration of that very thing that Jesus has come to achieve. She is entrusting herself in the face of death to Jesus, the face of life. Then the story moves on. And, now that was, that was Martha, obviously. Then Jesus meets Mary then. And once again is confronted by the utter devastation that comes with death. These girls have been chatting away. They've been having a word or two about Jesus before Jesus arrived. Because she leads out with almost identical sentence to Jesus. Jesus, if only you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. So there's a fair bit of conversation that wasn't reported to Jesus there. <laughs> I would suspect. 
And in response, Jesus acts in wonderful tenderness and compassion with Mary as he did with Martha. And you can just see it. He felt their pain and he identified with them. And verses 33 and 34 then. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? The whole scene, as Jesus observes it, prompts an overflow of incredible emotion on the part of Jesus. Now, we need to understand these words here because in the English translation, again, it says he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And it suggests that it might have been in, in response to seeing the girls weeping. But the language is much, much stronger than that. The, language, the word there means... In English, what was deeply moved in the spirit and greatly troubled, the word actually is better rendered, outraged. Jesus was absolutely outraged at what he saw before him. So what was Jesus outraged at? Well, I take it he was outraged as he observed the mess caused by sin among God's image bearers. You remember back at the start of Jesus' ministry, one of the first things he did, he went to the temple. And the same word, he was outraged. He was outraged back then because he saw in the temple, the very place of worship, he saw how sin, how far sin had taken God's people away in their heart from worshiping God. So it had just become a den of robbers and thieves, a place to make money. And he was outraged. Sin takes people away from God into death. Sin messes up the world, messes up lives, and ultimately takes us to death. And he was outraged. And he's outraged at the end of his ministry because he looks at the unnaturalness of death in God's good creation. He's outraged at the misery of the human race, the carnage of sin, and the destructive power of Satan, who is the power of death and whom he had come into this world to defeat and destroy. And his outrage, outrage then comes with tears. He weeps. He weeps because of the mess of sin he sees before him in the lives of his friends. He weeps because sin means that God's not honored as he ought to have been honored by those he made. He weeps because just in just over a week, he would do battle to defeat Satan, who is the power of death, knowing that that battle would cost him his life. So he weeps for what's ahead, I believe, as well. So here we have it as we move to the climax of this miracle. The final action of the drama unfolds with Jesus standing in front of the tomb of Lazarus not in a state of inconsolable grief, but driven by absolute outrage at the mess sin causes in God's world. And with that, we see for the second time in this story a confrontation with that indisputable power 
as Jesus moves Lazarus from death to life. Come back from the dead, Lazarus, now. Come back from death to new life, now. And immediately, the stinking, and that's the word, not, not a polite odour. Man, in a 50-degree climate after four days, do you want me to describe it to you? Alison begged me not to. Yep, the stinking decomposition that Lazarus had become is reversed. Totally reversed, immediately reversed. And Lazarus bunny hops out of the grave, looking a bit stupid in a sense, wrapped in these grave clothes. He couldn't have walked. And Jesus says, take take those things off and let them go. Almost an anticlimactic statement. Because the climax was the saviour of this world, Jesus Christ, the one who had claimed over and over and over again to be God because he had the power that only God could demonstrate. And he demonstrated that power saying, come back across the divide, Lazarus. Come back to life. And even bigger still, and we'll deal with this next week, the second half of verse, chapter 11, even bigger still, the scene was just a shadow of what would be repeated in just over a week where Jesus would confront the real enemy, Satan, who has the power of death, and defeat him and prove his lordship over everything by himself coming back from the grave. Remember in chapter 10, Jesus said that, nobody will take my life from me. For the sake of my sheep, as a good shepherd, I will lay down my life, and then I will take it back up again. Now, who else but God has the power to come into this world and exit the world and come back into it on his own volition. Only Jesus has the power to deal with sin, which inevitably results in death, and thereby reverse the curse of death and restore life as it was meant to be to God's image bearers. That is his mission. He confirms that mission as he prays to his father. He, he openly says, I'm not praying this because I need to pray. I'm praying this to show you guys that I and the father are absolutely one in this mission of moving people from death to life. So John arranges this story as a report of Jesus to do this. It's one thing for Jesus to have the big words, to promise words of life. But in this part of the story, his actions speak much louder than his words. He actually delivers life from death in this very public and orchestrated setting. Could anything bring more glory to the Lord? More honor to the Lord than this? I don't think so. So I finish with this question. Same question that Jesus asked Martha. Do, do you believe? Do you believe? 
Surveys of Christians show that, uh, that I've read, there's probably lots of different ones, but I've read surveys that show 60 plus percent of Christians don't actually believe in the resurrection. I'm talking Christians, I'm not talking pagans. So I ask the question again, do you believe? Jesus said he was the good shepherd. Chapter 10, the good shepherd who pursued his lost and wayward sheep, pursued his sheep right to the point of their being dead in their trespasses and sin. He calls them back by name. He delivers them into the good life of relationship with God as we were created to enjoy. That's what Jesus said he did. And here, he delivers. My friends, here's the practical application for you. Jesus is that something we long for when we're confronted with death. He is that better life we sense we were created for. He offers us life in the midst of coping with dying bodies that fail us constantly and increasingly. The big issues of life, what happens when I die, can be sorted now by believing that in Jesus there's forgiveness, new acceptance, new relationship with God, and the good life, eternal life, life abundant, life that will go with us from this life into heaven and eternity in an unbroken continuity. So again, as we've seen week after week going through John's gospel, the question is this, will you put your hope for the future into building security and longevity into your current life by your own resources? Obsessively even trying to defy age and death. And my goodness, our society is given to that now, isn't it? And we in the church just trot along behind society, obsessively trying to define, defy age and death. Or will you invest your future in real life, true life defined by relationship with Jesus? Life that will take you across the divide that one day we will all have to cross into a continued life of never-ending enjoyment of Jesus in heaven. My friends, I just ask you, I beg you to consider these words. Let me pray. Lord, it's a hot morning, not, not, not uh, conducive to concentration. Lots of distractions around us and in our own hearts and minds. I pray, Lord, that you might cut through all those things and, and print your word in our hearts. Give us great joy for those who have already committed ourselves for life, to life in Jesus. And Lord, for those who are here this morning who have not yet done that, break through resistance, Lord, so that they might also choose life. Amen.